0: Okay, I know this isn't the original Star Trek theme from the 60s, but this theme to the Star Trek motion picture gives me the most nostalgia feels as an 80s kid growing up watching the films. And who would have thought the franchise would still be going nearly 60 years later with more films, TV series and books, exploring strange new worlds and boldly going where no man or woman has gone before. I'm Genevieve and I'm super excited to introduce my guest for today. So please welcome to talk about his life after that thing he did as Sulu, the living legend that is George Takei. George, icon of stage, screen and social media, how are you, sir? I'm
1: doing fine. It's uh, morning here, but you're in London, so... It's evening for you, I trust.
0: Uh, four o'clock for me, eleven for you. Oh,
1: not that bad. But
0: yes, you are in New York, and I'll just explain for people because in your where you live in your apartment, there's um, some building work going on in the building opposite you. Can, can you hear it? We can. We can hear a little bit. There's a little bit of a hum, and also occasionally there may be some beeping and dynamite explosions. So we'll just <laughs> we'll just prepare people for that. There was
1: a huge. Church building there. It's amazing. It was about a uh, 30-story building, and it just melted away. And now they're digging into the granite of Manhattan Island so that they can plant the uh, foundation for this tall building, however tall it's going to be. So uh, they're now using dynamite, not just uh, banging on the iron physical structure of the building. So uh, it's quite... uh, Terrifying. Gr- Love booms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if, if the, uh, the Earth moves for you, it's not going to be this stellar interview we're about to do, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> okay, so um, you've had such a long, amazing career and we've got much to cover, but I'll just start off with a fun fact. There's something you, Clint Eastwood, Scarlett Johansson, Bill Nye the Science Guy and my husband all have in common. And that's you all married
1: journalists. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Brad was a journalist.
0: But old habits die hard. And uh, us journalists are a particular breed. So my husband has to deal with me being critically opinionated, asking lots of questions because I need the details, picking out typos in restaurant menus, but also very good in a crisis. But you and Brad have been together for some 35 years now.
1: 36.
0: 36. So... How have you found being married to a journalist?
1: Well, like all journalists, he's very precise about everything, detail-oriented and uh, organized. So actually, he's made my life quite uh, livable. All I have to do is show up. (laughs) He takes care of everything. Everything is in place and we have a common understanding and I just come to do my thing. It's very convenient. (laughs)
0: That's good to hear because I know journalists are some of like the most hated professions in the world. So uh, it's, it's nice that we're, we're actually nice people.
1: I love journalists and particularly mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. I'm greatly abridging here, but after your stage debut as the head pilgrim in the Thanksgiving school play, you took some acting classes while you were studying architecture at the University of California, which led you to your first paying job voicing the English version of a Japanese monster movie, and then you switched to study theatre and acting at UCLA. And then in 1966, after a spate of roles in films and TV shows like Playhouse 90, Perry Mason and Mission Impossible, you were cast as Lieutenant Sulu in a pilot For a little show called Star Trek. And you almost missed the phone call for the audition, didn't you?
1: (laughs) Yes. As a matter of fact, I was taking a shower when my agent called, and uh, I vocalized in the shower. So there I was, singing away with the shower pouring down over me, and I didn't hear the telephone ringing in the uh, kitchen. So I was merrily singing washing myself, uh, shampooing my hair. And then I thought I heard the phone ringing through all that uh, noise. And I turned the shower off and sure enough, there it was. And so, dripping wet, I came out and uh, answered the telephone and it was my uh, agent with that fateful call of an interview with Gene Roddenberry.
0: As Sulu, It really was a a breakthrough role, not just for you in terms of your acting career, but for Asian-Americans who weren't really on screen that frequently. And I'm half Chinese and even growing up in the 80s, I saw no one on mainstream TV that looked like my family. So for you to be in this authority role in the 60s when Asian men typically usually played servants or villains or just a bit of a clown. You must have felt really proud, but also a great sense of responsibility for what you were doing.
1: It was on so many levels because, yes, I realised, well, on the most personal level, it meant steady uh, work week after week. It was a series, and all my career had been one-shot guest roles. Uh, A feature film is a one-shot. And uh, a television series uh, as a guest on one episode. And uh, a series meant steady employment. So that was exciting. But then it was a groundbreaking opportunity, as you pointed out, for an Asian actor, totally devoid of uh, stereotype images, uh, the villain or the silent servant or the comic buffoon. and an opportunity to represent Asians as a member of a diverse uh, leadership team on the bridge of the enterprise. Mm-hmm. So it was a thrilling, groundbreaking and security opportunity for me.
0: You said to... um James Dewan, when you were filming the pilot, that you smelled quality with the show, mm-hmm. but as quality doesn't last on television, you predicted it would only last two seasons. And you weren't far off as it lasted three before it was canceled because ratings were low. But I wanted to talk to you about one of your memorable episodes, Naked Time, where you got to demonstrate Sulu's fencing skills. And you really threw yourself into preparing for it, didn't you?
1: Indeed I did. I had suggested the fencing foil because the script originally had me uh, wielding a samurai sword and I said to the writer well it's uh, ethnically consistent because I'm I'm of Japanese ancestry but Sulu is a 23rd century uh, starfleet officer and he would see his heritage much broadly than just narrowly uh, ethnic. And he would uh, see his heritage as that, uh, that of the world. And even 20th century George Takei as a kid saw a movie titled The Adventures of Robin Hood starring uh, Earl Flynn. And I was just swept away by that. And so when I got home, my backyard became Sherwood Forest. My mother made me uh, a Robin Hood costume. I recruited the neighborhood kids And uh, skinny Gary McGarry, uh, tall and blonde, was my friar Tuck, who's actually short and pudgy. And uh, Martha Gonzalez, uh, a neighbor, was my maid Marion. And my backyard became Sherwood Forest, and we had a merry old time. And so uh, that was my make believe uh, uh, swordsmanship. Uh, The writer suggested the samurai sword, I said, wouldn't it be interesting and so much more sci-fi if he had instead a fencing foil in his hand? And he said, yeah, it's a great idea. Do you fence? You never ask an actor whether we can do something or not because we can do everything, anything. Of course you can. Promptly that <laughs> night I was at home. Back in those days, we had what what we called the Yellow Pages, mm. a great big, thick, fat book that listed all of the uh, services and uh, and facilities available to you. And I was looking up fencing lessons, found one. And that Saturday, I was taking my first formal fencing lesson. So... That what you saw on Star Trek on your television screen was two weeks worth of frenzied last minute fencing uh, lessons.
0: (laughs) And so, as we said, despite being so ahead of its time in terms of diversity of casting and storylines being allegories for social issues, the show was cancelled. And after massive support from fans and ratings uh, for reruns were better than the original airing, Nine years later, you got the call to say Paramount was making Star Trek the motion picture. But in the years in between that time, you began getting more involved in politics and worked on political campaigns from mayoral to senator elections. You were a delegate to the Democratic National Convention. You ran for city council in L.A. and had a public office role for 11 years on the board of directors of the Southern California Rapid transit district and oversaw the creation planning and funding of the Los Angeles subway system which is amazing but why was it important for you to get involved in politics when you already had a, a day job as, as an actor
1: well as a teenager my father taught me that it's very important in a people's democracy for us as citizens to be participant in it and that advice was particularly meaningful to me because As a child, I was behind American barbed wire fences, a prison camp, an American prison camp for American citizens of uh, Japanese ancestry. Pearl Harbor was bombed when I was four years old. And a few months later, I, I turned five years old when the United States, in this insane frenzy that swept. the country, saw American citizens who had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor other than be of Japanese ancestry. My grandparents had immigrated to the United States. And so my mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was a San Franciscan. My brother and sister and I, the three of us, were born in Los Angeles, California. We were Americans, but we had these faces that looked just like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. And in a sweeping executive order, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which ordered all Japanese Americans on the west coast of the United States to be summarily rounded up with no charge, no trial, no due process, and imprisoned and for the duration of the war. And so I have this background. I was too young to really understand what was happening to us back then. But as a teenager, I became very curious about uh, uh, my childhood. And so I had many after-dinner conversations with my father, who told me that our democracy has noble ideals, equal justice under the law, due process, When you're arrested, you have the right to know what the charges are and then the right to challenge those charges in a court of law uh, where the people bringing the charge against you has to uh, back it up with facts, with evidence. In our case, there was no charge, so there was no trial. And simply because of our ancestry, we were put into these prison camps It's very important in a democracy for citizens to participate in order to give meaning to those shining ideals that we have. So because of that background, I was very much involved in the political process. When I was a teenager, my father took me to the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters, and it was exciting. You know, a political campaign has all of the uh, drama that a theatrically bent young my, young teenager thrives in: excitement, mm. people gathering together to support a candidate, being inspired by the ideals that your candidate uh, articulates, and then the suspense of will he or will he not win the uh, uh, election, and then either Overwhelming joy on election night or black tragedy uh, if a candidate doesn't make it. And that's how I became a confirmed activist in political campaigns. And hence my activism on the grassroots level and uh, uh, on the uh, state level, uh, serving on state uh, boards and on federal commissions. Hmm. I was a political activist Mm. as well as uh,
0: an actor. So back to Star Trek. Thanks, you were juggling both things at the same time. The franchise was revived with Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979, which was a massive hit and spawned five sequels through the 80s until Star Trek VI when Sulu was finally made a captain of the Excelsior. Um, And again, we're pressed for time, so we can't talk about all the films. But there are a couple of things I wanted to pick out from that time. First, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which I gather was memorable for you for a couple of reasons. First, because you discovered why they say never work with children or animals. (laughs) And also because you were unexpectedly flashed on set.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Our set was the city of San Francisco. And there was one scene where uh, Jimmy Dewan, Scotty and uh, DeForest Kelly, Dr. McCoy and I, we were walking down this hillside street, and we passed by uh, a bar, a uh, pub in England, and uh, there were people there. They were not hired extras. They were just people that were there. And it was a glass storefront, so uh, they could see the activities. And they, uh, the people inside were asked to uh, be as quiet and as uh, uh, helpful as they can when we walked past that bar. And we had many rehearsals. We walked down the bar and there was a buxom lady right near the window who would wave to me uh, each time we passed by in rehearsal. And then with all the whistles going and the warnings, the assistants uh, with a bullhorn saying, this is a take, everybody be quiet, behave, you hired extras walk up and down the sidewalk and not pay attention to, our, to the actors. All right, ready? And the director said, lights, cameras, action. And we started walking down. And when we came to the bar, the uh, buxom lady that usually just waved to me, when I peered into the bar, she grabbed the bottom of her blouse, threw it over her head, and waved her big, bountiful breast at me <laughs> instead of her, her fingers. And I just broke up. And that that scene was shot. So we had to do it over again. And the assistant went in and had her removed so that she couldn't uh, communicate uh, just visually with the uh, actors. I'm sure she wasn't seen, caught on camera because there was a glass window there, but I broke up. (laughs) It was a very pleasant breakup.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And on the personal front, during those years, you were part of the Olympic Flame Relay in 1984, running in your hometown of Los Angeles. And then two years later, you received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You must have been so proud to achieve both of those things in, in your hometown.
1: Well, I was a a distance runner. Uh, I was a member of a a, a running club. And um, how that came about is very interesting. The uh, Olympic flame that uh, got from Greece and shipped over to the United States. And I think it started in New York City. And the flame was passed on from one runner to another from New York, covering every state in the Union. Each uh, runner was able to carry it for uh, uh, half a kilometer and uh, pass it on to the next. And it was a fundraising campaign. And some uh, wealthy person uh, would uh, sponsor a runner for uh, half a kilometer. And it went to some charity. And uh, I, being a runner, I asked the uh, production of uh, Star Trek, could you sponsor me for a kilometer uh, uh, running with the Olympic flame? Not uh, Fully not expecting them to uh, accommodate my request, but they did because, you know, we had a picture coming out and it would have been a good promotion for the uh, next Star Trek movie. And so they did fund that uh, kilometer for me and I got the flame from the runner before me, and I got it at the uh, Los Angeles Central Plaza when uh, Los, Angeles, uh, Los Angeles was founded as a uh, Spanish colony.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, Los Angeles means the angels. The colony was uh, founded with a central plaza, and it still exists today. And Los Angeles grew out of that plaza. I received my flame at that plaza. And ran it for the next half a kilometer, which was on the threshold of Little Tokyo, the district of uh, downtown L.A., which is the Japanese-American community there. And I passed the flame on to the next person there. Hmm. And so that was a wonderful gift for me as a runner and as a member of Star Trek to be uh, sponsored by the studio that's producing the uh, film and in the city of Los Angeles, my hometown.
0: When you got your star on the Walk of Fame, I know the, um, the mayor also declared it George Takei Day. <laughs> what, what happens on George Takei Day? Is it like the queen when she has like two birthdays, you get to have a special celebration again? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the mayor de- uh, declared it, so uh, it was a special day. I got up in the morning, got dressed uh, very naturally for the uh, star ceremony, which is a um, big deal for us Southern Californians and for tourists in Los Angeles. You know, tourists in every city, particularly in New York City, when they uh, walk through uh, the streets of New York, they look up, they're looking at the towers uh, and uh, all the wonderful buildings and uh, institutions that we have in the city. Well, in Los Angeles, instead of looking up, all tourists, particularly in the Hollywood area of Los Angeles, tourists don't look up. They're all looking down because the the stars are on the sidewalk. So it's so typical of Hollywood. They honor you, not by putting a star up on the wall so that people can look up, but on the ground, on the sidewalk. where They
0: just walk all over you.
1: All sorts of (laughs) ugly things oh beyond what dogs do to it you know <laughs> and so uh, it's an honor and a very special experience to unveil it but at the same time your good name gets walked over by the world <laughs> and my mother was there and uh, Brad was there and all the Star Trek fans were there and it was a wonderful uh, experience and uh, i'm just I think two stars away from Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator of Star Trek, and Leonard Nimoy's star is on the corner of the very same block. So
0: you're in good company. I call that
1: the Star Trek block.
0: Uh, I sort of linked to that the day before Star Trek six. Uh, was released in 1991. You were all honoured at Groman's Chinese Theatre. But tell me the story about when you signed your name in the cement because you were a little bit rebellious, weren't you?
1: <laughs> I am a rebel in many ways. <laughs> uh, we were all gathered uh, in the empty theatre uh, before the ceremony. The crowds were all there on the sidewalk and they had a marching band. But we were uh, gathered in the theater and, The uh, publicist told us uh, we've got to uh, squeeze all of your names from Bill, Leonard, uh, DeForest, uh, Jimmy Dewan, me, Walter Koenig, uh, Nichelle Nichols. All of us were going to be on that uh, wet concrete square. So we are to write our names on and only that so that there'll be space for all of us. I thought that was. Odd because I'm a native Angelino and I've uh, lived through all the legendary uh, names that uh, are on the forecourt of the Chinese theater. All the great uh, uh, movie stars of yore, Douglas Fairbanks, uh, Marlena Dietrich. uh,
0: Shirley Temple, I've seen as well. Shirley
1: Shirley Temple. And I know the the ritual. Uh, It's not just a signature. But that's what they told us. So we got that instruction. We went out the back way. We were assigned uh, the cars to ride in. And we became part of the parade with the marching band leading us. And the car arrived at the theater. We got off. And uh, the announcements and the, and the dignitaries uh, made their speeches. And one by one, we went up. Bill very dutifully just signed his name. William Shatner, Leonard Stern came, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, and they were all very obedient. They did what we were told just write your name. But while that's going on, I thought to myself, I'm the only one who was born and raised in Los Angeles. I have a responsibility as a native Angelino. All the others don't know any better. I know because all of the other ceremonies I've read about in the newspapers or seen uh, television news reports, and I said, I'm going to do it. And when my turn came, I wrote my name on that wet concrete, George Takei, and then I put the stick down and opened my palms and pressed it into that wet concrete.
0: Oh, you rebel.
1: And... Bill Shatner, in shock, said, George, put his hand in. I'm going to put my hand in, too. And so he came running down and went splat. And that opened the floodgate. All the others came, came down and put their uh, handprints on, on the uh, uh, wet concrete. And so I saved the tradition, the hallowed tradition of the Grauman's Chinese Theater. A signature and the handprint.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Last bit of nostalgia. Um, back while you were making the original Star Trek series, you grew really close to your castmates, and every Friday evening you'd all go out to eat sushi. But what I really want to know is, does the burden of guilt for why Walter Koenig doesn't like sushi still weigh on your conscience?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the first uh, night, uh, I took just Jimmy Dewan and uh, we drove down the Hollywood freeway to Little Tokyo and we sat at the sushi bar. And Jimmy, I, I told him, uh, you want to go to a sushi bar? And he said, <laughs> Uh When I said sushi, he, he thought <laughs> he was making a joke of it, of course. But he said, a bar. Oh, good. Let's go. It was the idea of eating at a bar that uh, uh, intrigued him. And uh, I introduced him to sushi. I started him off with a a very, I thought for him, an easy introduction. A tuna, which looks like beef. And it it is raw fish is delicious. I love it. And uh, he took his first bite. He loved it. And he says, what's that orange one? That's uh, salmon. Well, let's have another one. He loved that. In fact, he loved the whole thing and the next morning he was raving about it to everyone. In fact, the way he described it was almost sexual. (laughs) He said, you put it in your mouth, and you run your tongue over the flesh, the meat, and you bite into it, and the delectable flavor that just fills your mouth. And so, they all became curious and they said they all wanted to go. And so I I said, we can't uh, go during the week because uh, it also comes with libation and you can have wine, but uh, what's really uh, the appropriate drink is sake. Yeah. And so you have sake with a sushi. And so that Friday night after work, we had a caravan of cars going down the Hollywood freeway. And uh, because Jimmy Dewan had educated most of the people that went down. They uh, sat with Jimmy on that end of the bar. But Walter was very insecure. He, he says, I, I, I don't even eat uh, raw beef and raw fish. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with you. And Walter was right next to me and I thought I'd start him off easy as well with tuna. So the sushi maker made a pair of two uh, sushis and placed it in front of him. He picked it up. He said, I couldn't, I can't use chopsticks. And I said, it's all right. Uh, you're not Japanese. You're entitled to pick it up with your fingers and uh, you can dip it into uh, a little bit of soy sauce and then you bite into it. And he sank his teeth into it. And suddenly, his eyes popped open, and his nose uh, snorts shot out. Uh, he had this look of shock. I forgot to tell him about the wasabi. <laughs> it's that hot green mustard that's tucked underneath a slice of raw tuna. And he uh, got his napkin, and he uh, immediately spat out, what he had in his mouthful and he started hacking and his eyes watered nose was, was running and his wax almost popped out of his ears. <laughs> and and uh, that was the last of Walter and sushi. He never joined us in our subsequent treks down to little Tokyo. The others all loved it. Major Major Barrett loved it. Michelle loved it. <laughs> so our, uh, Caravan down to Little Tokyo on Friday nights was minus Walter Koenig.
0: (laughs) Do you feel bad still (laughs) there?
1: I don't, because that poor guy, he has his own fallibilities. Uh, It it really wasn't my fault. He he doesn't like hot, spicy things, and I forgot to tell him about it. (laughs) In fact, I should have ordered the uh, uh, tuna sushi without the wasabi.
0: I'll let you off then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time welcome you have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the Latted Zone So, after Star Trek VI, you declined to return for Star Trek Generations, but you did return as Sulu in an episode of Star Trek Voyager in 1996. And you've had more than 170 acting credits since, including, of course, four seasons of Heroes in 2007. And I guess it's unsurprising because you have such a magnificent, recognizable voice, but you've done so much voice acting from films like Milan to Kubo and the Two Strings, and most. Most recently, you voiced a tubby cat sidekick uh, in Paws of Fury alongside Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) Uh, Scores of TV animations, including Spider-Man, Batman, The Simpsons, and Futurama. How do you find the challenge of just relying on your voice to convey so much emotion?
1: Well, I grew up during the age of radio. We didn't have television back then when I was a kid. Uh, My uh, source of entertainment was... uh, the movies and the movie theaters, or radio drama. And radio drama I could have in my home living room every day. And so I became a devotee of radio drama. Uh, Green Hornet, uh, Bobby Benson, and the B. Barbie writers. And it was just the human voice, plus sound effects, uh, devices uh, Mm -hmm. like empty coconut uh, shells, that became horses, horses galloping yeah. or uh, uh, triangles or uh, other sound effects. Just the human voice capturing terror or tenderness, love or uh, joy. It's an amazing thing. You, you can transport someone out of the, his or, uh, living room or bedroom, listening to the radio, to a magical world. And tell human stories Exciting, romantic Comical And so I grew up on voice acting And my first Very first gig Was dubbing in English dialogue On uh, a Japanese film About a monster That terrorizes Tokyo So uh, Voice acting was to me Almost a natural thing And I'm still doing
0: You married Brad in September 2008, and Walter Koenig was your best man, and Nichelle Nichols, who we sadly lost earlier this year, was best woman. Tell me a bit about the day. Did it go by super quick? Because my wedding day certainly did.
1: (laughs) Well, before the wedding itself, uh, I asked Walter to be our best man, and he agreed. And I called Nichelle to ask her to be the matron of honour, which is the usual uh, title for that role. Michelle said, "I am not a matron. <laughs> if Walter can be the best man, why can't I be the best lady?" Now immediately I thought, "The opposite of best man is best woman, as you cited, but Michelle had given her an upgrade <laughs> given herself an upgrade. <laughs> she was a lady, and I said, "Of course." you are our best lady will you be that at our wedding and she consented and yes i had my star trek colleagues as uh, a part of our wedding party
0: mm. did the day go by quickly
1: it went by very quickly too quickly but brad is the wedding planner <laughs> of of our family He began the planning about uh, a month and a half before. So that month and a half.
0: That's not very long.
1: Well, for (laughs) me, because to me it was simple, you know, just do it and we move on. But all the planning and and getting fitted for the uh, white uh, uh, dinner coat and all the A tasting of the cakes now that that Brad arranged. That went on and on forever, it seemed. And the ceremony (laughs) itself was no more than about 20 minutes.
0: And then a few months after that, you appeared in one of our great British TV shows, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, where the great British public voted you through to the final and you finished in third place behind Martina Navratilova and Joe Swash, who you had a lovely bromance with. Um, And as well as jumping out of a plane at 71 years of age, you were behind what I think is still one of the funniest moments of television where you ate, or rather struggled to eat, A kangaroo's penis. (laughs) And I don't know if you remember what you said after you choked a bit after. Only you could deliver that line.
1: I don't remember what I said, but I remember that process.
0: You said, I think the penis is rebelling. (laughs) It, or it's, it's getting an erection. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I probably said that. I cannot swallow this one. <laughs>
0: it's on YouTube. People need to watch it. It's brilliant.
1: <laughs> but it, it's, it's like leather. I mean, you would think that, you know, there'd be some give to it. But I kept chomping on it and chomping on it. It got to be really boring. In fact, they stopped the camera <laughs> because they could take so much of you can know, I, I
0: only was, take chewing on a penis for so long. For so long.
1: <laughs> and then uh, so they stopped the camera and they said, uh, take it out of your mouth and tear at it so that it's in chewable pieces. And so I did that and I chewed some more. And it f- felt like another five minutes of chewing, <laughs> but I was finally able to swallow it. It is uh, most tasteless. It has no taste, really. It's like chewing on leather. That's dried up and totally tasteless. But I was able to swallow that. It was an experience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You were defeated in the end by a camel testicle. Um,
1: (laughs) Was that what it was?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what are your memories of those three weeks in the Australian jungle?
1: Well, uh, again, wonderful friendships uh, formed. As a matter of fact, one went on to become a member of parliament, Brian uh, Patek. And he became a, a member of the House of Lords now, and so we we kept in touch. And we, next time we uh, got to London, uh, we visited with him, and he took took us out for tea in the uh, Members' Terrace. So and
0: House of Parliament, awesome. <laughs> oh, uh, uh,
1: and uh, Martina was uh, Martina. She was she had to keep up her fitness uh, regimen. She found. Uh, a piece of uh, cloth, a rag, and she held it against uh, the, uh, the uh, tree and she made it into a, a fitness exercise. She was amazing. It was an experience that I will remember for a long time. And flying out of a plane only with another person strapped to your back was such an initially a liberating feeling Yes, there's all that wind, but it doesn't feel like you're falling because you're far, so far up and everything is in miniature down there. And the breeze, uh, more, more than that, a, a, a gale storm hitting you is like something solid. So it doesn't feel like uh, falling. It was really liberating. As a matter of fact, I thought of uh, Superman. Superman in the comic books flies like that with your arms uh, up front. And so I uh, pretended to be Superman like this. And the the guy on my back said, George, spread it. (laughs) And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) And I flew down like a bird. But once you get near Earth, then it starts coming at you very quickly. And then it hits you. And you're like this. And then before you know it, you're rolling on the ground. Life passes as fast as that. Mm I mean. Talking with you is like flying off of off of a plane. <laughs> I'm getting all this gush <laughs> <in the> of air. <laughs> I
0: don't know how to take that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a very warm and calming air that comes rushing out.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Either, or I'm full of hot air, yeah. Um, <laughs> and one of the other uniquely British traditions you've turned your hand to is Panto, which is pantomime for everyone not in the UK. And you were, I think, the first American to do it. I think so. Back in 1987 in Aladdin in Reading, and then in Snow White in 92 in Brighton, yes. and Aladdin again in 2009 in Kent. What were your Panto experiences like?
1: Well... You know, when I I told my American actor friends that I'm doing a pantomime, they said to me, oh, isn't that wonderful? You don't have to memorize lines at all. (laughs) I said, no, no, no. It is a lot of memorizing. It's a lot of noise. It's a little bit of all forms of theaters mashed together in one. They're absolutely confounded by it. But I tell them it is a fun experience. It's like vaudeville, musical comedy, acrobatics, and uh, a dance routine all done together. I tell them, you've got to come at Christmas time, holiday time to uh, uh, England and experience that. The whole family comes out, grandmom and granddad, dad and mom, and the children. And you carry on a conversation with the audience and they'll tell you, oh no, the other way. No, is he over here? No, no, the other way. <laughs> uh, so the drama is uh, participatory with the audience. And Americans have no idea what kind of nonsense I, uh, I, I'm engaged in when I uh, uh, leave during the holiday seasons for England.
0: No, they're missing out. <laughs> uh,
1: it's great fun. It's great fun.
0: You've really embraced technology, you've had an internet presence since 1999 when you launched your website and almost a decade ago you had a YouTube series exploring new technology and around the same time you cemented yourself as a social media superstar thanks to your funny posts and memes. Um, You've had a podcast and you and Brad are also behind the digital news site Second Nexus which provides entertaining and enlightening content specifically for your audience. It's, it's arguably a bit unusual for someone of your years. I think your sister didn't even have a computer 10 years ago. Does it surprise you how you've had this sort of second career online and on social media?
1: Well, I, I enjoy people. I enjoy chatting with them. And when this first came on, I was thrilled and absolutely overjoyed. It's like what they say, you know, the old town square where – the college professor is on that soapbox and the town idiot is on this soapbox and uh, the uh, plumber is on that soapbox. It's a chance for people to communicate in the moment to massive amounts of people. Uh, the town square was limited, but this gave, it, gave us a huge, vast, practically indeed global uh, access I was absolutely thrilled by that, but now we're discovering the dark underbelly of social media. Mm. The cause of the darkness is anonymity. People anonymously taking no responsibility, Mm. evil people, people who have no good intention Mm. have access to it too. And... It may be totally anonymous, and that's what makes. And now, disinformation, lies, mm-hmm. and uh, outright attacks can be uh, perpetrated on uh, social media. So I am really uh, in a quandary about uh, this system. Uh, all the da- so fragile people, teenagers, are made to feel bullied, and and. They do horrible things to themselves, evil people that egg them on and and absolutely irresponsible, not, not accountable to the, the evil that they're doing, and on a national level as well. So uh, it's something that uh, we've got a lot of thinking to do on.
0: Mm-hmm. So through all this time, you continued being a vocal activist for so many social justice issues, immigration, human rights issues, LGBTQ equality, and you use your platform to raise awareness of them, as well as all the work you do for the Japanese American National Museum. You must be acutely aware that had it not been for Star Trek, you probably wouldn't have been able to help affect or influence as much change as you have done over the past few decades.
1: Yes, they say So much, particularly in my business, acting, so much is dependent on luck. And I have been incredibly lucky throughout my
0: career and
1: throughout my life. I can't say I was lucky uh, in childhood when the horror of uh, unjust imprisonment happened. But in my career, my first gig was a voice acting job while I was still an architecture student up at Berkeley, and that led to my changing my major to theater arts at UCLA, and a casting director happened to be in the audience of one of the uh, the productions I I did at UCLA, and he plucked me out of that and put me into my first, very first major feature film, uh, Edna Ferber's epic novel about Alaska, starring Richard Burton a great Shakespearean actor. uh, And this is in his pre-Elizabethan period.
0: Elizabeth Taylor.
1: (laughs) Taylor. (laughs) And uh, I understand how the queen of Hollywood could fall head over heels in love with this man. He was charismatic, charming, witty, and such great company, you know, in between setups, set set side. And here I am, a stage-struck theater student next to one of the great leading men and shakespearean actor from england with that stentorian voice and i was full of questions and richard loved talking about himself so we were the perfect uh, uh, companions and uh, i made some discoveries about him uh, then english was not his first language
0: now he's welsh
1: he's welsh and that a glorious command of the English language, and his uh, surname was not uh, Burton; it was an adopted name. His drama teacher—he he was uh, born Jenkins—and he was one of like seventeen siblings, wow. seventeen children. Uh, it, it was an—I mean, I—I I would not have known all this about uh, him without the man himself sharing his life with me. So I was in a very privileged position. And all these lucky events happened one after the other in my uh, career, getting cast on Star Trek and for that to turn into this more than half century long uh, popularity. And uh, we ha- we've had many spin-off series, The Next Generation and Their Children, and then the generation after that, we have great grandchildren spin-offs uh, on Star Trek, and the uh, feature films are s- still going strong. And I'm still handsome and, <laughs> and and middle-aged, and I look like John Cho <laughs> in these uh, newer feature films. So how lucky can you get? And here I am talking to you about. My legacy project, uh, allegiance, opening in London. Yes. I mean, I'm an Anglophile, uh, and I've done pantomime and uh, Edinburgh Festival uh, plays. But you
0: said that with a Scottish accent. I noticed that.
1: Edinburgh. Oh, I, I've, <laughs> I've I've lived there, and I've gone back many times to uh, the festival so that uh, I can see those wonderful productions there, and. So how lucky can you get in life to have your childhood uh, imprisonment story told as a musical, which is also uh, capturing. My father said resilience isn't just teeth gritting, muscle flexing strength. It's also the strength to create your own joy under oppressive circumstances, to, to, to find beauty under all that ugliness. And my father, being the block manager, he was able to, you know, all teenagers had nothing to do uh, in imprisonment. He uh, Every other month, he got the uh, camp command to uh, lend us uh, a record player. And after dinner in the mess hall, the teenagers had their dances. And, of course, my brother and sister and I were put to bed uh, after dinner uh, our be- barrack was right across from the mess hall, and the t- teenagers had their dances there. And I dropped off to sleep hearing the big band sound of uh, Tommy Dorsey or Duke Ellington wafting over the night air. So I had that dark period of my life, but my father said it's also creating your own joy. Mm-hmm. You survive not just flexing your muscles, but to know why you want to survive. That there's uh, the beauty part uh, of of life that you have to work for. And uh, my father, uh, we were in the swamps of Arkansas. Trees rose up out of the uh, black water of uh, the bayous and Their roots came out and twisted and turned and went back into the water and snaked in and out, in and out uh, of the water. And my father saw beauty in that, waded out one day, cut off a very interesting uh, root and uh, boiled it in an oil drum and peeled off the bark. And lo and behold, a beautiful sculpture of nature. And I, uh, we had it in the living room as I was going up uh, after the war. And then uh, after my father passed, I uh, dropped in to visit my mother. And the uh, swamp root that we had in the living room was not there anymore. And I said, Mama, where's Daddy's swamp root?" She said, it reminds me too much of camp. I put it in the garage. And I said, Mama, if you don't want it, can I have it? And she said, yeah, take it, take it with you. And so I still have it in my Los Angeles song. Uh, it's a, be- a beautiful piece of sculpture. Mm. And my father, who saw the worst of the uh, that prison camp, was able to find that beauty, which I still can enjoy when I'm back home in Los Angeles.
0: So let's talk a bit about Allegiance then. Uh, next month, you'll be making your West End debut Finally, at age 85, in what you call your legacy project, um, as you said, it is based on your experiences as a child growing up in the camps. The show first opened in the US in 2012 um, and then transferred to Broadway 2015. But was it a hard sell getting it out there? Because it's it's a dark period in America's history that some people would probably rather ignore and not want to go to a musical about.
1: Well, uh, we hold a record in San we. First opened in San Diego, as you said, at the Old Globe Theater, uh, shaped like the uh, Shakespeare's Old Globe. It's been there since the 1970s. Uh, it's a very highly respected regional theater, and we hold the uh, record for the biggest box office uh, play presented by the Old Globe. And then we uh, we opened on Broadway, and did, we did very well. But it was the same season. As when Hamilton opened, um, and Hamilton sucked all the, the oxygen. So we had to send uh, our tickets over to the half-price ticket uh, office. And so our box office didn't break records as we did in uh, in San Diego. But still, we did handsomely. And I'm looking forward to having a great big smashing success in uh, London when we open Allegiance there, and the producers are now uh, calling it George Takei's Allegiance, <laughs> adding my name to, to, to the title. So uh, uh, I feel very responsible for it. So all of London, y'all come out.
0: We've got to come. To,
1: to, yes, from January to April, come to Allegiance and uh, enjoy A dark chapter of American history (laughs) with song and dance to boot.
0: The show's running for four months here, as you said, January to April. Eight shows a week with only one day off. And that's a gruelling schedule anyway for for a younger person. But you are 85 now. Where do you get the stamina from?
1: You know, so many of my friends are retired and they're bored to death. What do you do uh, when you retire? I mean i I don't play golf, I do some writing, but uh, I want to be engaged with life, and I love acting, and I get to act eight times a week, twice on Wednesdays and Saturdays. How much better than life life gets it's a little you know i I feel blessed again in that as well i I've talked about how lucky I am, and I'm very grateful for. That series of blessings that I've had, by despite the fact that it started off in a very unblessed mm. way.
0: I've just realised that I probably should have been calling you Dr. George because you've just been awarded an honorary <laughs> doctorate for, by the University of South Australia for your services to community. I saw a picture of you hugging a koala bear; very cute. Um, <laughs> and you've been honoured so many times over your lifetime, um, like lifetime achievement awards. Receiving the Order of the Rising Sun from the Emperor of Japan for your contribution to U.S.-Japan relations. You've even had an asteroid named after you. <laughs> which are you? Yes. Which are you most proud of?
1: Well, it's hard to say. Uh, they, they're all in different ways and different uh, arenas and from, from different countries. But I, I still don't have a Tony for best acting in, in on the Broadway stage or an Oscar for a movie uh, in uh, Hollywood. So uh, I'm still aspiring.
0: We'll get you an Olivia Award, don't worry. Once you're (laughs) in the West End, we'll sort it out for you, George. Don't worry. (laughs) George, it's been so lovely talking with you. I wish we could talk all day, but time has run away with us. Best of luck with Allegiance. I'll be getting my ticket, so look forward to seeing you soon.
1: I look forward to getting your review on it. Thank you very much. Live long and prosper.
0: Huge thanks to George for joining me. I could literally listen to him talk all day. As we said, you can catch George making his London West End debut in Allegiance at the Charing Cross Theatre from the 7th of January. It runs until the 8th of April, so you have some time to grab your tickets and you can find out more information at allegiancemusical.com. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. I do make and fund this podcast all by myself, so if you enjoy the show and would like to support it, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. And as ever, do please tell a friend or share it on social media so others can discover and listen too. Hit that subscribe or follow button, leave a nice review, because honestly... I'd listen to something if someone else recommended it. And do say hello and follow me on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catch-Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening.